Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. If you don't have your Bibles, there's one at the end of the aisle there, so you can read along on that one. And if you don't own a Bible, you can actually keep that Bible and take it home with you. Um, we started a series last week, obviously doing Nehemiah chapter 1, and today we're up to chapter 2, and Dave's going to preach for us today. And so let's start at verse 1 of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forests, so he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officially Uh, official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate, that's a different one, and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official and Geshem, the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is God's word. 
How's that? <laughs> ah, the power of the mute button. Well, good morning again. It's great to be here. During World War II, there was a very popular British Navy captain. He was a very smart tactician in battle. He was loved and respected by all his men and very successful. And this one particular day, his ship was on patrol in the North Sea, looking out for enemy ships so that they could you know, warn others and hopefully even sink them. And the lookout sent a message down saying, uh, enemy ship on the horizon, coming this way, prepare for battle. So the captain issued a few quick instructions to get his crew ready. And then he turned to his first mate and he said to the mate, go and bring me my red shirt. Now the, the mate was confused. He thought, really? We're, this is the time of crisis. We're heading into battle and the captain's worried about his wardrobe, like thinking about how he looks and what he's wearing, not seriously. But like a well-trained naval officer, he obeyed. He went and bought the captain his red shirt and gave it to him. And the captain quickly changed into his red shirt and then they engaged in battle. It was a long battle, lots of gunfire, um, a few casualties, damage to both ships, but eventually they triumphed. They prevailed and they sank the enemy ship. And as they sailed away, you know, there's always the feeling of relief afterwards when you've, you've won a battle and people are... You know, repairing the damage and tending to the wounded and getting life back to normal. And the first mate, he complimented the captain on his, his tactics and on his conduct through the battle. But he did say, look, sir, I do have one, one question, if you don't mind. Just as we were heading into, a, you know, a, a life and death situation, you were thinking about your clothes? Like, seriously, why would you do that? And the captain said, well, son... It's like this. I am responsible for every life on this ship. And as we enter into battle, I know there is a very good chance that I could be wounded, that I could be injured, that I might be bleeding. And I don't want my men to see me bleeding and be distracted or dismayed in any way. So I wear my red shirt in battle so that even if I am wounded, even if I am bleeding, Hopefully the men won't notice because I need them to focus 100% on whatever task they have to do. I don't want to be, you know, a distraction, a disappointment to them in any way. And the first mate said, okay, well, thank you, I understand. Well, a few minutes later, they got another message from the lookout. The lookout said there were five enemy ships on the way. Repeat, five enemy ships on the horizon, all coming this way. Prepare for battle. So the captain issued a few quick instructions to his men to get them ready and he turned to the first mate and he said, mate, bring me my brown pants. (laughs) So there are all sorts of different leaders in the world, aren't there? But um, we're doing, as Luke mentioned, a new series on the book of Nehemiah, who is a very, very capable leader. Before that, if you've been here a few weeks, you know we just finished a series through the book of 1 Peter. Now, Peter was, was a giant of the faith, one of the 12 apostles, probably possibly the most prominent of the 12 apostles, a very influential man in the book of Acts and through the early church. He wrote some letters and uh, genuinely a, a giant of the faith. And so we always like to keep things in balance, so we're going to talk about it from going to a giant of the faith to one of the shortest guys in the Bible who's called Nehemiah. So, actually, of course... Actually, of course, we have no idea what Nehemiah's statue was like, whether he was tall or short or anything, but we do know that he proved himself to be a very capable leader. 
During the series on First Peter, we, we learned there's a few, a few constant themes through that series. Fixing our eyes on what God has in store for us. And also staying faithful to God despite opposition, despite persecution. And in Nehemiah, we see a very practical example of the principles that we learned about in First Peter. Nehemiah was putting them into practice. So there's a lot of things we can learn from the life of Nehemiah. And verse 1 reminds us again, verse 1 of chapter 2 reminds us again that Nehemiah had a position of prominence, and an influential place. He was the cupbearer to the king. Now this didn't, doesn't happen by fluke. Clearly God had placed one of his people in this position at this time for a specific purpose. The fact that Nehemiah had this job shows us that he, he was a hard worker. You know, ancient kings were not known for their tolerance. So if, any, if there was any tardiness or insubordination or slackness or laziness, well, Nehemiah, he wouldn't have only been out of a job, he probably would have you know, been out of a life. But the fact that Nehemiah still had this job shows he was dedicated, committed, faithful, hard-working, genuine kind of guy. In the Bible, we see other examples of God putting his people in positions of influence at just the right time in history. If you've read the book of Esther in the Bible, you'll know. if you haven't, I encourage you to because it's a fabulous story. Or watch the movie One Night with the King. But Esther, although the king may have chosen her for, her for her beauty and for her looks, but God had clearly designed for her to be in that place at that time. And her courage and her bravery saved her people. We see Daniel, who became the king's most trusted advisor. Again, a, a hard-working, diligent man of utmost integrity, utmost faithfulness to his God and to his king. A loyal man. And we see the story of Joseph. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and yet he kept his faith in God. And then, although he worked hard and did everything right for his master, then he was accused of something he didn't do and was thrown into prison. And he still stayed faithful to God and kept his integrity. And then as circumstances evolved, he eventually became the second most important man in the whole land of Egypt after Pharaoh himself. And all of these people were godly, committed people who kept their faith through all all sorts of circumstances. So the lesson for us, wherever we are in life right now, whatever your job, whatever your task, whatever your role, wherever God has placed you, do your best. Be diligent at it. You, you never know whether God has placed you in that place at this specific time for a specific purpose. Maybe not on the same grand scale as Esther saving a whole race of people, but you never know who you might influence in the places where you are in life. So do your best. Maybe God is preparing you for something else in the future. Colossians 3 tells us, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So Nehemiah must have been a hard worker. He had earned the king's trust and in some ways maybe even earned the king's friendship. Last week, Pastor Luke described Nehemiah as being a man of prayer, a man of faith and a man of vision. And we see all of those qualities on display again in chapter 2 and right throughout the book. So at the start here we see Nehemiah, he's on duty before the king, but he looks sad. 
Now, this wouldn't have been normal practice. The king had far more bigger issues on his mind than whether one of his servants was having a bad day. So generally, you would have just sucked it up, smiled, did what the king um, required of you. But Nehemiah, it takes a bit of courage here. Nehemiah allows himself to look sad in front of the king. This is not the day after chapter 1. This is a bit of time has passed. Nehemiah has been at home, he's been praying, he's been fasting, he's been seeking out God. What do you want me to do? He's got a plan in mind. And now he allows himself to, with fear and trembling, because this may not end well, but he allows himself to look sad in front of the king. And sure enough, the king says, what's up? Just like the horse that walked into the bar, you know, why the long face? And, um, and the king says, tell me, what's the trouble? This must be sadness of heart. And Nehemiah explains to him the problem. And the king says, what do you want me to do? And again, we see a crucial thing here. Nehemiah, his first response again is to pray. He's already spent time at home praying and thinking about this and preparing and he knows exactly where he wants to go but as the the crucial moment comes again Nehemiah just pauses for one of those quick prayers like Lord just guide my words help this to go well and then he outlines his plan for the king he's already thought it through it's well planned he explains his vision for the king Now, if you've ever been involved in church leadership, you'll know there are different sorts of leaders. There are the visionaries and there are the conservatives. Now, the visionaries, they sort of like, well, this is what God's laid on my heart, so let's just get on and do it. You know, never mind the planning and the detail. Walk by faith, not by sight. Gung-ho, we're doing it. Get out of the way because this is going to happen. Occasionally, just occasionally, that works. You know, the story of David and Goliath, no training, no armour, just God said I can do it. Here's my slingshot. Thank you very much. Killed the king, killed the, the giant. Fantastic. Not the king, that was later. <laughs> but, um, but so just, you know, once in a while that works. But generally that, that gung-ho attitude leads to half-finished projects, you know, loss, embarrassment, bruised people, disaster basically. It doesn't really end that well. On the other side, there are the conservatives and someone presents them a great idea and they're like, well, wait a minute, let's think about this. We've never done this before. Let's, uh, let's do a cost-benefit analysis. Maybe we'll form a committee and look into it. And of course, opportunity has long gone before these people ever do anything about it. In the parable of the talents that Jesus told, you know, the guy who got one talent and he, he was too scared to do anything, he just buried it in the backyard and the Bible is makes it very clear that God was not impressed with that kind of attitude. So good leadership needs to be somewhere in between the, the full-on visionary and the full-on conservative. And Nehemiah managed to find a good balance of faith and wisdom. So Nehemiah had a plan. He'd already thought through all the obstacles. He'd thought about how to overcome them. He had done his research. He had counted the cost. He wasn't hasty, but he certainly got on with the job. Once God gave him the vision for what needed to be done, he went to work. And he's a good example for us to follow. So I hope that we as a church will always be just like Nehemiah. We will be people of prayer. We will be people of faith and people of vision. But not just 
faith that God can answer and vision of what could be done, but also people of action, people who actually get out and do it and get on with it. In verse 10, we read that Nehemiah faces opposition and those characters who were mentioned, they'll come up again and again throughout the book. Continual opposition. And there will always be opposition for people who are doing God's work. It happened in the Old Testament, happened in the Gospels, happened in the Book of Acts, happened in the early church, happens in modern days, happens in the world today. There is always, if you're doing God's work, there will be some people who oppose you, people who don't want it to happen. People will mock you, they will reject you, they will call you a fool. And personally, I'd rather be a fool in the eyes of man than a fool in the eyes of God. And how did Nehemiah respond to this opposition, to this criticism, to the mockery? In verse 20, he answered them, The God of heaven will give us success, and we, his servants, will start rebuilding. He knew what he had to do, and he simply got on with the job. He didn't let his critics discourage him, distract him in any way. He maintained his faith in God and went to work. A great example. Another aspect of Nehemiah's wisdom and his leadership is evident to us in verse 17. Now Nehemiah, he's inspected the walls, he's finished his research, he's laid out the whole plan, he's put all the details together and then he calls all the people together and he says, you see the trouble that we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So note that Nehemiah explained the problem first. See, sometimes leaders come into a new situation and they look around and they think, well, that's a mess and, oh, that's not working and, oh, what's going on over there? And they think about it and they come up with a solution and they sit down and they go, right, this is how we're going to fix it. But the people who have been sitting there for years have grown quite comfortable with how things are, they don't even realise that there's a problem. They just, that's just how it is. It's how it's always been. And when you suddenly come up with this solution, this is how we're going to fix it, they sort of, you know, there's resistance and you put their back up. And it, it causes tension. So Nehemiah, first of all, he lays out the problem. He sits him down and he, he points out, he says, look, the walls have fallen down. This is, this is bad. This is disgraceful. This is not good enough. He, he points out the problem. But then... He invites them to help him with the solution. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall. He doesn't say, I am going to rebuild this wall, whether you guys like it or not. No, he's already got God on his side. God's given him the vision. He's got the king's approval. Now he gathers the people and gets them all on side as well. Clever, smart leadership. Takes the people on the journey with him. And so leading into verse 18 where it says, so they began this good work. So God's work is always good, whatever it is. In his case, it was building a wall. It may be different in your case. And in the case of Nehemiah, although his specific task was to rebuild the wall, we also see great fruit of that, great byproducts of that later in the book. So Nehemiah was a man of faith. He believed in what God could do. He was a man of vision. He saw what needed to be done and he inspired and encouraged and motivated other people to join in and and help him. But he was also a man of action. In the New Testament, the book of James tells us that faith without deeds is dead. In other words, just having faith but with no action, it's pointless, worthless, useless. 
Nehemiah was a man of action. He put his faith into action and got things done. There's also a few other observations from this chapter that I'd like to make just about the importance of building the wall. So the Bible tells us that God's people should be set apart. Remember the, the title of our series on First Peter was Aliens because God's people, followers of Jesus, we are, we are aliens. We are set apart. We are different from the world around us. And our, our lives, the fact that we are God's people should be easily recognisable by the way we live our lives. We should be easily distinguished and set apart. In Nehemiah's time, the, the distinction between God's people and everyone else had been blurred. And sometimes it happens today. In that case, it was because a wall had fallen down. But in our, li- in our case, sometimes it's because our lives become indistinguishable from the rest of the world around us. What is it that sets us apart as God's people? I heard a question once someone said, if somebody accused you of being a Christian, of being a follower of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict? Now, of course, for most of us, we'd plead guilty, say, yep, I am, and you know, I'll happily be, be convicted. But really, our lives should be so different that it's, it's obvious. People wouldn't even have to ask the question. It would leave no doubt at all. Now, it is important to note we don't want to be separate from the world. We don't want to isolate ourselves from the world, but we do want to be different from the world. A few weeks ago, I was walking in Berwick, this road that I've walked on many times, and there's a building there, um, nice-looking building, but there's all the gates are always locked, and I'd never seen anyone come in or go out. And I used to wonder what, what this building was. And then one Saturday morning, just a few weeks ago, I was walking along and the gates were open and there was cars going into the car park. And I thought, oh. And there was a guy standing at the, a young guy standing at the gates and every car that came in, he'd sort of make eye contact with the driver and they'd go in and I assumed he was checking tickets or something. And as I walked past, I said to him, what is this building? Is this just a convention centre or something? And he said, no, this is a church. And I said, oh, great, good on you. What denomination are you? And he said, oh, whether something you are the Plymouth Brethren Assembly. And I said, oh, fantastic, I'll go to a Baptist church. And he said, oh, that's nice. And I said, well, have a good morning, praise the Lord. And he said, thanks, mate. And I walked on. 20 minutes later, I was walking back along the same road and the gates were locked again. Car park's half full, people in there, and the gates are locked. And I thought, how sad is that? That they, they believe they've got the truth, they've got the hope of the world, the hope of salvation, and yet they're just keeping it all to themselves and locking the world out. This is for us, not for anyone else. And I thought, how sad. Jesus has called us to be a light to the world. So we don't want to isolate and separate ourselves from the world, but we do need to be different from the world. Be in the world, but not of the world, not like the world. We need to be a light to the world. So this war was not just about architecture. This was, it was symbolic, symbolic of God's hedge of protection. And as we will see in the next few weeks, the wall made a difference as it was built. People began to demonstrate God's godly behaviour. They, they look after the poor in chapter 5. They publicly confess their sins in chapter 9. They publicly commit themselves to following God's commandments in chapter 10. See, once again, God's people were blessed to be a blessing to others. 
And we as a church are blessed and we want to be a blessing to the community around us. We, we may not be residents of Jerusalem, obviously, unless you're a visitor, in which case welcome along. But, um, but we are all a part of the kingdom of God that Jesus talks about so much in the Gospels. And so our, our motivations, our goals, our desires, our purpose, what drives us in life is different from what drives other people in the world. We might live in the same suburbs, eat the same food, wear similar clothes, but our, we should be set apart, we should be noticeably different, we should be easily distinguished by our behaviour. Now let's be honest, different is not always popular, different is not always easy. In fact, different often invites opposition, resentment, criticism, mockery, even hatred. And God's people can expect opposition from those people who do not agree with us. And we might be tempted just to protect ourselves, to shut ourselves off from the world, just to you know, protect ourselves from that criticism, that hardship. But Jesus calls us to be a light to the world, to love and forgive the very people who hate us and accuse us and reject us. So we still live in the world, but we do not become like the world. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays this beautiful prayer that's, that's worth reading and he's talking to God and he's praying for his followers and he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And then he says, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world but that you would protect them from the evil one. So Jesus didn't want us to shut ourselves off from the world. He himself prayed for our protection as we live in and amongst the world to be his people, his representatives, the salt, the light in the world. So some questions for us to ponder today. What difference does your faith in God make to your life? What is it that sets you apart? How does your faith affect your words and your actions? How does your faith change the way you act in your workplace or in your study? How does it affect our friendships, maybe even our marriage, our relationships? What difference does our faith make to our finances, our career, our ambitions, our hobbies? If your life was compared with the life of an unbeliever, would there be any obvious differences? Is there something about the way you live your life that will draw other people Jesus and here's the great question that we all wrestle with how do we remain distinctively Christian, distinctively Christ like without alienating our neighbours and our friends and our colleagues see Nehemiah had a job to do, his job was to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and he committed himself, he focused and dedicated himself to doing that job Focus is always a good thing. There was once an an American baseballer. He went out to bat. And you know, in sport, you always like to sledge your opponent and get under their skin, get in their head and, you know, put them off their game. So as this guy is just about to face up to the pitch, the the catcher, who's sitting there, he's trying to distract him and he says, hey mate, you're holding the bat the wrong way. 
You meant to hold it so that the, you can read the, the, the maker's label. You can't read the label. You're holding it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And the batter just ignored him. He watched the pitch. Crack. Slugged it way up into the bleachers. Home run. And he jogged all the way around. And as he came back past home base, he said to the catcher, I'm not here to read. <laughs> See, he, he knew what his job was and he focused on his job. And we also have a job to do. Our job, as this church vision says, is to represent Jesus in our community for his glory. And we need to be focused and committed and dedicated to doing the job that God has called us to do. So will you join me? Will you join us in in building a church that is just like Nehemiah? People of prayer, people of faith, people of vision, but also people of action. Let us be God's people who, who hear God's voice, who see what needs to be done, and who don't just think about it, but get in and do it. And may God bless everything we do for him. Amen.